Welcome to the Cosmic Eye Show, where we explore spiritual ideas and books that help you live a better life. Hosted by spiritual teacher and author of If You Can Worry, You Can Meditate, Jason Napolitano. All right. Hello. Welcome to the Cosmic Eye Show. It is Sunday and we are doing uh, an episode today on the sun. So it's very appropriate. So happy Sunday to everyone. I am your host, Jason Napolitano, and I have on the line uh, Chris Sheridan out in uh, L.A. How you doing, Chris? Doing great on this Sunday. And yes, very appropriate to talk about the sun on this day. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm glad you guys are all right. We just, uh, I know you got an earthquake out there. Uh, what was that yesterday? No, the day before yesterday. Yeah, yeah a couple crazy. of them. All right. So as I said, uh, we are going to be speaking about the sun, a universal deity. Uh, this is the chapter from Manly Hall's Secret Teachings of All Ages, chapter uh, nine, uh, Roman numeral nine. And uh, a great chapter. It's kind of a companion chapter to the, the work that we did last week, if you heard the podcast last week, on Isis. Isis being more of a feminine or, or, or water-based symbol. This is uh, the fire and the sun uh, aspect of things, of the op- sort of opposites there that, that, that come into harmony to, to, uh, to create you know, all that we know as material existence. So this is the sun side of things, the masculine um, portion of it the solar deity and we're going to be looking at some of the 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 different symbolism and and emblems of of the sun uh its aspects and and redeeming the redeemers of the world and some of these different mythologies and so on so it's gonna be a fun show today uh thank you for listening uh if you can i want to first uh if i want to first thank uh, our listeners and supporters who are supporting us financially if you can we ask that you could uh please donate to us if you get a chance uh, you can do that through anchor.fm uh, slash cosmic eye. And you can click on there and, and, and you can do anywhere from uh, $0.99 cents to $9.99 a month to support the show. We would greatly appreciate if you do that because it does help us uh, get the show out to more people and share this kind of great esoteric and spiritual information with people. So if you are getting something out of it, please, uh, please help us out. And uh, we can get it out to more people, hopefully make the world a little better place with a little more uh, spiritual knowledge. That is our that is our goal. So, all right, let's jump right into this then. Uh, I'm going to start uh, kind of from the beginning where Manly Hall starts speaking a little bit about uh, and kind of an overview of the sun, some of the different gods and so on. Uh, there's a great, actually a great quote that I'm going to read just to start this out. He, he He's quoting from Albert Pike from Morals and Dogma. Albert Pike, of course, uh, a Freemason, 33rd degree Mason, famous, uh, famous philosopher uh, and Freemason, who wrote that great book, Morals and Dogma. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and read this. So he says, to them, and he's speaking of uh, archaic peoples, he, the sun, was the in- innate fire of bodies, the fire of nature, author of life, heat, and ignition, He was to them the efficient cause of all generation, for without him there was no movement, no existence, no form. He was to them immense, indivisible, imperishable, and everywhere present. It was their need of light and his creative energy that was felt by all men, and nothing was more fearful to them than his absence. His beneficent influences caused his identification with the principle of good and the Brahma of the Hindus, the Mithras of Persians, Atum, Amun, Ptah, and Osiris of the Egyptians, and Bel, or Baal, 
Persians is also known, of the Chaldeans or the Babylonians. And the Adonai of the Phoenicians, the Adonis and Apollo of the Greeks became but personifications of the sun, the regenerating principle image of that fecundity, which perpetuates and rejuvenates the world's existence. Of course, last week we spoke about Isis, the virgin of the world. And you wanted to talk a little bit about that, uh, the connection to that with, uh, with Isis and the, and the birth of the sun. Uh, why, don't you, why don't you share a little bit about that and kind of tie these two together real quick? Uh, this week's sun and then last week's well, um, ISIS or the kind of mother matrix of the world uh, discussion that we had. Well, sure. We, uh, you know, already starting to see the connection. We're seeing some themes uh, and some images and symbols being repeated, sometimes in a different clothing. Uh, like we talked about in the last uh, episode, the connection between ISIS uh, virgin of the world uh, to connect it to the Virgin Mary, um, the, the mother of wisdom. Uh, and so in this image, uh, the facing page uh, to the beginning of this chapter, uh, there's a beautiful Isis, uh, or I'm sorry, beautiful uh, Mary. There is again, uh, looking very much like the Isis, same, same artist. And she's holding uh, the Christ child, illuminated Christ child, in her arms, very similar to uh, Isis and Horus, we've seen in Egyptian uh, symbology. And in the caption below, uh, all states that the, the symbol of Mary or the Virgin Mother uh, relates to faith, and then the Christ child relates to wisdom. And you can see she's standing on an orb, uh, ostensibly the earth. Uh, with a snake coiled around it. And the statement goes on to say that wisdom, that is this Christ child, born from faith, shall redeem the world, which she's standing upon, it's encircled by the serpent of evil. So that this connection between uh, this force, this generative force of of love and faith uh, brings forth, you know, on brings to the earth. So it kind of connects the two of them together. You have this earthly earthy thing below and this, you know, heavenly or even beyond the heavens uh, image above. And what is born of that is this child, this son, the S U N, the S O N, the redeemer of the world, just as it redeems the winter and the sun comes back. Um, after the solstice and, uh, you know, gives life to, to everything on this earth. Uh, so there's definitely a very strong connection, uh, and we see this um, throughout, and, and we'll see it again, I'm sure, as we go on. All right. Thank you, Chris, for that uh, information about Isis and uh, Mary and some of that symbolism. Good stuff. Uh, helps us to tie together what we're talking about today and what we talked about last week. So if you, if you want, check out that, uh, that other podcast that we did last week's uh, Isis, uh, Mysteries of Isis, Isis, Virgin of the World. Uh, it's a great one. So the next thing I wanted to talk about um, is the, the kind of the early, early connections to, to religion and the sun. Uh, Manley Hall points out that the adoration of the sun was one of the earliest and most natural forms of religious expression. Complex modern theologies are merely involvements and amplifications of this simple Aboriginal belief. 
And then he says, the primitive mind, I'm quoting here, by the way, from Secret Teachings, the primitive mind, recognizing the beneficent power of the solar orb, adored it as the proxy of the supreme de deity. Yeah, that's um, very astute because, yes, there was this astronomical phenomenon, <laughs> whether it's the sun or the moon or the phases or eclipse or things. Um, and yes, they were venerated and perhaps worshipped in the symbolism, but it wasn't the celestial object itself that was being worshipped. It was the effect, the meaning um, that that symbolized. So even just to say that, oh, they were worshipping the sun, even if they were or they had veneration for the, the solar orb, it was really made meaningful um, by what the symbol connected to in their lives. If the winter solstice, then the sun is coming back. So things will be warmer and things will get green again. It, it had such significance, more than just an observation. Uh, it was very ingrained in their Yeah, experience. good point. Good point. And one of the other things actually they brought up in that video is, for example, with that, with that winter solstice, is he also talked about how the ancient Egyptians saw that time of the winter solstice and winter as being the most spiritual time of the year. It was the time when one was able to go within in the same way that, it, you know, seed lay dormant in the, in the, in the earth. And then, you know, it's, it sprouts and in the spring and you see it coming forth in the phases of the sun and so on. But this particular time in the winter for human beings and the quality actually of the sun itself, its rays sent out more sort of, introspective sort of an energy which i found very interesting and i think you could make that argument if you look at your own life i find in my own life certainly in winter i i'm much more introspective first of all i'm a capricorn so you know it's gonna hit me but i'm, I'm more introspective in general but i have noticed in winter I, I do tend to go within myself and i'm a little less uh extroverted i'm a little more introverted i'm a little more introspective at that time of the year and I think even with, 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 you know, when we think about like the New Year's resolutions and so on, I think we tend to be more introspective and we, we try to rectify some of the, the you know, mistakes or, or kind of reconnect with our goals and so on at that particular time of the year. Because I, I think you could make a good argument that we are a bit more introspective during winter. It's darker. The days are shorter. Um, you know, it certainly has that quality. It's colder if you're not in, you know. Well, it's colder everywhere, but I mean, it's not, you know, obviously we don't have winter here in Southern California and in Nevada where I'm at uh, to the degree that you do on the East Coast and so forth. But but it's colder. And, you know, I, I think that that does lend itself to a sort of um, a more introspective kind of a thing. And you could think where, you know, with with the ancient peoples, probably at this time, you know, you're you're eating stored foods, you're huddled around fires, you're trying to keep warm. You know, this is a time of storytelling and sharing and games and mythology. There's much less uh, outer activity and so forth. You know, do you know what I mean? And so I think it's it's apt. Yeah, that's uh, that. Uh, well, it is just like we're saying that these are, are more connected in a very real way yeah. with their lives. You know, it's not the old oh, the equinox. Did they really care? Um, you know, the equinox. I mean, it's spring it's yeah you know it's so significant beyond just you know a celestial coordinate no, exactly. or something that we might look at it scientifically exactly. and that's now. why i wanted to kind of make that point that you know manly hall went on 
uh, later on. He wrote this book early on when he was a young man, Sacred Teachings. And so, you know, I think this kind of, he, he does kind of oversimplify that to, to a degree, not to be critical, but I think, you know, like I said, in that astrotheology lecture, he kind of opens it up more and says, yes, that is true. This is one of the, one of the meanings, but it, you know, you can't necessarily just reduce down, you know, all, all religions are just, you know, misguided sort of solar or astronomical, you know, phenomenon. And that's, that's what we're basing them on. You know, and I think there's good evidence in terms of the mythology, in terms of the philosophy of the Greeks and even, even earlier cultures um, that they, they know that the, at least the sophisticated members of society did know that. And I mean, like in the hermetic um, axiom as above, so below as within, so without, you see that they're, they're touching on that idea. They see that the that the universe and the cosmological happenings and the you know astronomical um, phenomenon so so forth are analogous to what is happening within the human on a microcosmic level, the macrocosm and the microcosm. And so you know that's that's something to remember. I think we sometimes oversimplify the ancient mind and think, oh, they just were these mythologies are just simple-minded tellings of scientific phenomenon that they didn't understand. And it's 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 a little uh, demeaning to to the ancient mind, which brought us to the place that we are today, uh, through their wisdom. Do you know what I mean? Do you agree with that? Yeah. Well, it's our hubris, and we think, oh, we're so advanced because we have you know cars and planes and cell phones and things like that. But I would go even further and say that the ancients had a much better understanding of the inner life. Uh, perhaps they didn't quite understand the the, the natural world in the scientific lens through which we view it now, uh, they might not have had that terminology or the instrumentation, but they certainly saw what was going on. They could predict eclipses and you know, did a lot of sciencey things. Without computers, uh, but the mind emphasis, you, without, 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 yeah. without the modern conveniences that we have to do that, and they were incredibly accurate. Well, their main instrument of perception, their own consciousness, was much more fine-tuned because you know, yes, we can peer deeper with microscopes and telescopes, um, but it's also, there's sort of like an atrophy of perception. I don't know if that's, that's a term yeah, or should be one. Yeah. But as we rely on these things, then we trust them beyond trusting ourselves. And so our intuitive and some of these more mysterious parts of our consciousness, uh, really creative and insightful uh, parts of our inner wisdom, uh, just get turned over and deferred to some, you know, readout on a machine, and then that gets trusted. Um, they've really developed the sense of that. And, and again, to you know, reiterate these objects and these phenomena that were happening in the outer world with the sun going through its cycle of the year and the equinoxes um, was so important because of that connection that you're talking about that as above, so well, as out there, so in here, uh, that that's also where their focus was. It wasn't just worshiping out there. It was, okay, this is important because it's in here and we have to pay attention. And this outer world is showing us something that is connected and we can see out there maybe what we can't see in here as much. So it's always the pathway was inward. You know, that what we see out here is really a mere reflection of what's happening in here. And we've lost that uh, in, in the centuries and money that have passed. 
Uh, we moved from superstition through religious dogma, and now it's scientificism or whatever it's called, where we rely on uh, scientists who are actually human and just as fallible as, as anybody else. Uh, but the real loss is that we have lost touch with our own inner wisdom that we all have to some degree. And the more that we can get in tune with that and unfold that and rely on it, doesn't mean we're going to do away with science and things like that. Uh, but we're just have been so out of touch for so long. And I think that's why there's maybe a yearning for deeper symbolism and metaphysical and esoteric uh, you know, teachers and information right now. That's why Manley Hall is so popular years after his death on YouTube of all places that didn't exist during his lifetime. It's because I think innately we know we've, we're missing something. We're missing a part of ourselves that was so important to ancient so-called primitive <laughs> Aboriginal cultures uh, that in that sense, they were much more sophisticated that's than we are today. That's a great point. And I think, you know, it's a different, uh, a different tool or a different sort of um, type of, of consciousness that, that they use that we uh, have, as you say, kind of gotten away from. And, you know, the scientific uh, viewpoint and the kind of rational viewpoint that we prize so highly today is a fantastic thing it's gotten us um a lot of a lot of great uh um you know forward movement and technology and obviously this you know po these podcasts and videos and all this uh, great stuff that we're able to to get these days is, is a result of that but then you know in turn in some ways we've lost a certain type of uh, more intuitive and heart oriented sort of way of looking at things. And I think that um, the earlier cultures were much more in tune with that sort of, sort of way of being and actually even there are cultures today um, that still are more in tune with that. Some of the um, indigenous peoples and so on are still practicing uh, religious beliefs that are, that are closer to probably what most of early, you know, early men and women, sort of practiced and so you know they haven't necessarily lost a mythological viewpoint or they're more immersed in a mythological viewpoint and and thus they're more intuitive and a little bit more heart-centered and a little bit more connected to the earth than than i think we are in our intellectual scientific ivory towers um and that's that's disappointing because you know europe had its own indigenous traditions all uh, you know the middle east had its own indigenous traditions the ancient near east obviously had various uh, religious movements and so on that were connected, more connected to the earth, connected to the stars the movements of the planets and so on. And, and, and so when, as, as time went on, I think we began to look at these, these phenomenon as scientific events instead of um, something connected to our, our lives in the same way that we kind of look and think about food these days. I mean, you go to a grocery store, oftentimes they'll, you know, they, they'll do these things. I watch a lot of these, uh, slow food videos and, you know, organic gardening videos and things like that. And, you know, they'll, they'll go into cities and ask kids where, where things come from and they'll say the grocery store. I mean, they'll literally ask like, where, where does an egg come from? I don't know. The grocery store comes out of a box. And so there's a very, you know, there's a disconnection. I mean, and how often do we go to the grocery store and, and really think about where the foods come from out of the earth and where do they, you know what I mean? And so that disconnection in this technological world is, is, is a challenge. 
Uh, so I think that's why it's important to to study this material to kind of get a connection back to, you know, the old, the sort of ancient way of looking at things. And, and it encourages us to be more connected to our environment, the cycles of life, the seasons, you know, the earth itself. And, you know, as, as advanced as we get, we're, we're never, you know, we're never going to outgrow the cycles of the earth. I mean, we can kind of bend them and we can sort of pretend like we're above and beyond them. But eventually, I mean, as we're seeing through, you know, through climate change and so on and through the decimation of a lot of the natural world and, you know, biodiversity and so on, we do so at our own peril. Um, you know, whether or not you agree with the, you know, the idea of global warming, we can all agree that there's less natural, uh, the, uh, less of the natural world and certainly less species. This is, you know, this, this can't be argued. So, you know, I think that, you know, kind of getting in touch with these ancient ways is a way that we can get in touch with the natural world again. All right. So getting back to some of the symbolism, let's talk about the solar trinity. I think this is a neat section. I like this one. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about that and kind of get into the uh, the origin of the Trinity? That's down. Uh, that's a little bit uh, down in the second paragraph of that first uh, that first portion of it about the the movement of the sun and so on. Do you, do you want to talk about that a little bit? Um, yeah, well, sure. The um, of course the Trinity of Christianity is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost or or Holy Spirit. Um, in the Hindu tradition, it's Brahma, uh, Vishnu, and Shiva, the creator, sustainer, and destroyer. Um, and to find a parallel between those two is, you know, kind of hard. Yeah, there's three of them, but do they really relate to each other? I'm not really sure. But if we look at them through this solar imagery, this, this symbol of the, the sun, and again, not the fiery ball of light, although that's a huge part of it. And just to add on what you're saying about being out of touch with nature, I think there's probably nowhere in nature something more relevant to people's lives, even today, than the sun. It's still nighttime. It's still hot. <laughs> it's still cold in the winter. So whether we realize it or not, we are connected to the sun, if nothing more than it determines what kind of a jacket we put on when we go outside. But this solar uh, trinity uh, actually relates to the Oedipus rill of the Sphinx. And that is the sun being uh, you know, one uh, in the morning, uh, one throughout the day, and another one in the evening. So the morning sun uh, relates to the father because this is the beginning of the day, the generative, this is producing um, this light. And then the sun, what is given birth, is the day, the day where we can toil and work and do our things. Um, and then at night, it becomes the Holy Spirit. So it's setting and it's going away in the sense, but that's the time for maybe the invisible sun uh, to become more known, just like you're talking about during the winter to be more introspective uh, so that that Holy Spirit um, that uh, kind of runs through everything is uh, is more active than in the evening. Uh, so that's within a day, uh, you have this solar trinity between the morning, the noon, and the evening sun as it rises and lights up the world and then sets into the night. 
All right, great, great. Thank you for uh, thank you for sharing that. That's a good way to, to put it. It's an, and it's interesting because again, they took something from the observable world, and then they connected it to these symbolic representations uh, of the different mythologies and the different gods. And 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 as we said before, you know, it's not just that they were trying to explain phenomenon that they didn't understand. It's that I do believe they they understood. Uh, these these phenomenon, but also they were trying to connect them to to human life and connect them to different phases in our life, like I said, and and so forth. And so, so that gets us into our next portion of it is, you know, the movement of the the movement of the, the apparent movement of the sun, not the movement of the sun, but the apparent movement of the sun through the through the different uh, the procession of the equinoxes, and um, that's under that this section of Christianity and the sun uh, in the secret teachings. So I'm going to read this. Uh, because Manley Hall really puts it nicely and succinctly, and he talks about these four phases. So he says, and I quote, The philosophers of Greece and Egypt divided the life of the sun during the year into four parts. Therefore, they symbolized the solar man by four different figures. When he was born in the winter solstice, the sun god was symbolized as a dependent infant who, in some mysterious manner, had managed to escape the powers of darkness, seeking to destroy him while he was still in the cradle of winter. The sun being weak at this season of the year, had no golden, he had no golden rays or locks of hair, but the survival of the light through the darkness of winter was symbolized by one tiny hair which alone adorned the head of the celestial child. As the birth of the sun took place in Capricorn, it was often, often being represented by uh, being suckled by a goat. So that's the first phase of it. That's the, uh, the, winter, uh, the winter solstice. Second phase is the vernal equinox. He says, at the vernal equinox... The sun had grown to be a beautiful youth. His golden hair hung in ringlets on his shoulders, and his light, as Schiller said, extended to all parts of infinity. Uh, at the summer solstice, this is part, part three of the, of the movement, the summer solstice, the sun became a strong man, uh, heavily bearded, who in the prime of maturity symbolized the fact that nature at this period of the year is strongest and most fecund. At the autumnal equinox, the fourth portion, the sun was pictured as an aged man, shuffling along with bended back and whitened locks into the oblivion of winter darkness. Thus, 12 months were assigned to the sun as the length of its life. Uh, during this period, it circled the 12 signs of the zodiac in a magnificent triumphal march. Now, this is uh, it's, it's interesting uh, symbolism. A lot of the time, too, you get, if you watch, if you're a fan of these ancient alien shows, you get a lot of... Um, you get a lot of this symbolism in their explanations for things because they find symbols that correspond to these celestial happenings. And then they tend to take uh, an approach whereby it's the uh, sort of the opposite approach of the religious idea where we would determine down to one point, just say all religion is an explanation, you know, is explanations of celestial movements or an expl you know, or is sun worship in a different form, you know, well, they, the sort of ancient aliens, version of that is all religion is misunderstood you know information celestial and astronomical and astrological um and explained as you know as gods or myths or as as these different figures or movements uh that they that they saw or they would say basically you know it's the gods are are ancient aliens mis misunderstood so, so both of those points of view are kind of similar, 
in the sense that they're trying to resolve down this this symbolic understanding of of the of the macrocosm and the microcosm into usually macrocosmic or microcosmic interpretations of a very determined single you know point and that the thing we've got to remember we talked a little bit about this last week uh, is that the as that symbolism is um is deep and it's rich and it carries multiple meanings always because if it can be resolved down to one thing it would be a sign and not a symbol and everything in this book that we talk about in manly hall's work manly hall's work in general but particularly in the secret teachings is explanations of symbols so you cannot just make these simple one-to-one relationships that would be a sign like a stop sign or a, or a plus sign it means to add in mathematics that's that's a sign not a symbol a symbol on the other hand is suggestive of certain things but it's not limited to those things so that's 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 something to remember um did you have anything to add about that that sort of procession of the the equinoxes and that sort of movement uh, through those four phases um well i like the four phases and they they relate to the four seasons but seasons in our life we have a may december relationship somebody younger somebody older it still plays in some of the terms and phrases that we use, but I think already now we've talked about three major solar movements uh, or apparent movements, like you clarified. Uh, one's the solar day, you know, this trinity during the day. Then there's the solar year uh, where the sun moves around the zodiac or appears to uh, from our point of view. And then the larger one, the much larger one is the sun uh, traversing through the equinoxes, which is, 26 to 28,000 years uh, in its cycle. Uh, and that was very important. You can easily see how a day, day and night, or where the sun is during the day, or sunset, oh, the you know, sun's going down, will it come up again? Yes, Helios pulls the sun back up again with his chariot of four horses the next morning, uh, or the solar year, because the seasons and everything, uh, you know, that in a, you know, northern latitude is very significant for your life you know the four seasons planting everything uh even how animals migrate and hibernate and and, and but why this larger one that it was so important uh, that even the ancients who didn't have the instrumentation that we know of uh seemed to understand this much larger cycle uh and not only understood it and recognized it identified it um made it part of this you know, this worship, so to speak, or part of the, the mythology and, um, you know, religious, uh, you know, relation uh, that they have uh, with the sun. Uh, so that's something maybe that goes even beyond, you know, this chapter and uh, maybe further discussion. But I just find it that interesting that it was so important, so significant um, that all these aspects of the sun, astronomical, uh, visible and otherwise, uh, were so important and mostly important how it relates to, because we have our solar plexus. We have, you know, it's even called that in our body, and that's right in the middle. The, the yellow chakra, uh, if you will, is in this, this solar region, kind of in the middle. Uh, so it's even part of our, our bodies, if you will, as, as it is part of our worldly life. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that the, uh, the ancient peoples who came up with those psycho-spiritual centers in the body and with the chakras uh, were definitely connected to this, uh, this, these symbolic ideas and this mythology, as well as the, 
you know, the, the, the knowledge that they had about the, about the universe and, and the different um, aspects of uh, cosmology as they understood it. All right, so getting into some more symbolism, uh, this section is called The Three Suns. I found this one really interesting. I'm going to lay out a little bit of what Manley Hall had to say. And then I'll let you kind of of carry it forward because uh, I I greatly appreciate your insight into these. Uh, The solar orb, like the nature of man, was divided by the ancient sages into three separate bodies. According to the mystics, there are three suns in each solar system, analogous to the three centers of life in each individual constitution. These are called three lights. The spiritual sun, the intellectual or solar sun, and that's soul spelled S-O-U-L, solar that's a cool use of that word. I like that. And the material sun now symbolized in Freemasonry uh, by uh, three candles. That's those three, those three aspects. The spiritual sun manifests the power of God the Father. The solar sun radiates the life of God the Son. And the material sun is the vehicle of manifestation for God the Holy Spirit. So man's nature then was divided by the mystics into three distinct parts. Spirit, soul, and body. Spirit, soul, and body. So let's talk a little bit about that. Uh, that I mean, that we, we did speak a bit about, about that before, but, um, but this is also, I think mean, this is connected to those three, those three stages also, um, the three parts of the day that we were talking about that you, that you highlighted, but in kind of a different, in a different way. Uh, so can you talk a little bit about the, the spirit, the soul, and the body? Yes, it's uh, as... You know, it's not only a time thing, but now we have the three different aspects of existence, which so many traditions, you know, body, soul, and, and spirit, uh, mind, body, and soul that, that we have um, for us. And we know we have this, you know, triune or <laughs> trinity of our own uh, personal existence. And... Um, and, and again, it brings the sun into the body or the sun as this thing out there is something that we have in here or what it does out there or how it operates or what it means out there has an operation, has a meaning, has a significance in our life. And you know, there are different types of light. I think that's what some of this is, is getting at. Um, that having, you know, not only these three centers of activity uh, or you know, aspects of the body, um, we also have uh, the brain, the heart, and then our reproductive generative system, uh, that these are the main centers um, of, you know, what motivates us and how we can move through the world. Um, and having that connect to the sun uh, is in some way, uh, you know, illuminating um, what's important because there were some other, uh, I guess the Rosicrucians, um, you know, also thought of, you know, the three suns or looked at them like that, but made a very uh, important distinction between two types, I guess, of light. one is attributed to Lucifer, the light bearer, bearing the light, uh, and the other one uh, associated with the Christ energy. And that if you just have the one light, if you just have an intellectual understanding or a, oh, okay, here's, 
you know, here's, here's an, an atom smasher, you know, okay, that can be very dangerous if you don't have the ethics and the moral responsibility and the wisdom, you know, tempered in this wisdom of this Christ energy, uh, that that sun, that light um, is the protect, protector, the redeemer, the resolver, that if you just have that one light, and that's maybe where this negative connotation with Lucifer, because if you just look at the word, you know, bearing the light, well, what's wrong with that, you know? <laughs> Bring on the light, you know, we want enlightenment. It, it sounds kind of good if you look at the etymological thing, but how it's used, at least in this Rosicrucian concept, is that just having a basic knowledge of something without the wisdom to use it properly, ethically, uh, is tantamount to evil. Uh, because, yeah, it might be hit and miss. You might do some good things, might do some bad things, but it's, it's dangerous if you don't know what it is. It's a, you know, you don't let a six-year-old behind the wheel of a car. I mean, they, you know, might do pretty well for a while, but it's, it's, it's probably not going to end well. Uh, so that distinction, and the, also, the, again, that two types of a light. So just opening up, you know, the mind to something, you know, is good, but it can be dangerous if it's not used properly. And I think that's some of the danger I see in, in what's popular to, I guess, to go off on a tangent, but uh, these eye-opening or mind-expanding drugs or DMT or ayahuasca experiences that, again, it's this external thing. Fine if you're using it in ceremony, you know what it's about, and you're mentally and spiritually trained to understand and integrate this experience or just to even have this experience but without that training then you're just blindly opening up something and it could you know produce a whole host of errors uh, that that would you know certainly follow um, whereas if you have an understanding and put it in the context and know what it can do and what it can't do um, you know, you're in a much better place where maybe you don't need as much of the ayahuasca to kind of artificially open up something uh, that you're not already prepared for. And I think a lot of these meditative and spiritual that's a great That's a great point. Um, and I think sometimes people forget that, you know, along with that visionary experience, they do need the training and the experience of someone who understands what those symbols mean and can help them work, work through what they're seeing and sort of process it and then apply it to their lives. Um, it's not just I think that's one of the problems with the drug experimentation of the 60s with the hippies and so forth is, you know, there were genuine seekers of wisdom who genuinely, you know, followed that path um, of exploration um, in a in a constructive way. And then there were people who, you know, blew out their minds on too much LSD because, you know, they wanted to break on through to the other side. And, you know, they were kind of caught up in the sort of popular mythology of the day and they weren't prepared for it. The, the, the body, the mind uh, were not prepared for those spiritual experiences. And it, it literally, you know, devastated those people's lives. And it happens even today. I mean, you get a lot of people just pushing themselves to extremes. They end up in mental institutions with, you know, with psychedelics and so on because they're not using them properly. And that's one of the dangers. And you see a lot of the, you know, the popularity of psychedelics, DMT, ayahuasca, you know, mushrooms and all the various uh, shamanistic sort of approaches to, you know, opening up the mind to visionary experiences. Um, really popular on YouTube today and on podcasts and so on. 
uh, and I'm and I'm not uh, against that by any means, by any means. It's just that I think some people haven't prepared themselves for that journey and it can be very dangerous and you have to remember that and, and do those, you know, do those psychedelics and, and, and experiment with those things with proper guidance and direction and, um, and instruction from people who, who understand it and don't just go about, you know, kind of willy nilly experimenting with things that might blow your mind out, honestly. And so, you know, that's, that's, that's the danger of that spiritual vision coming on too fast. And the ancients had a lot of uh, guards against, against people getting those experiences. That's why I think a lot of times, a lot of this spiritual wisdom was, was hidden in allegory and mythology and so on, because, you know, even a, an idea that uh, leads you to a different understanding or, or truth about the universe can have the effect of sort of blowing out your your moral and ethical understandings of life and, or it could make you somewhat nihilistic. And so they, they tried to conceal a lot of these ideas behind symbolism so that they didn't shake people's sort of day-to-day faith in life and the gods and their fellow human being and so on that, we, you know, we need that stuff in order to function um, in a proper way on a daily basis. All right. So that brings us about to the end of this. I do want to share uh, one more, uh, one more quote uh, this is a great quote from The Secret Symbols of the Rosicrucians, a Franz Hartmann um, book on alchemy. And this is quoted from The Secret Teachings on page 142 of the Reader's Edition. The symbol of wisdom, the center of power or heart of things. The sun is a center of energy and a storehouse of power. Each living being contains within itself a center of life which may grow to be a sun. In the heart of the regenerated the divine power stimulated by the light of the Logos grows into a sun which illuminates his mind. In a note, the same author amplifies his description by adding the terrestrial sun is the image or a reflection of the invisible celestial sun. The former is in the realm of spirit, what the latter is in the realm of matter, but the latter receives its power from the former. So on that note, I would like to say, open up your spiritual wow. suns inside, and mm-hmm. let the uh, let the light uh, let the light shine forth. Right. So, thank you, Chris, for all of your great insights. I appreciate it. Thank you. You're clarifying some of some of the stuff. I was a little bit fuzzy on some of the things I was pointing out, and you did a great job of of, of reining that back in and, and and using some better terminology than I think I used at times. So thank you for that. Um, and thanks, uh, listeners for joining us each week. We're here every Sunday with a new episode of cosmic eye. Uh, we appreciate you listening again. Like I said, if you can, if you can support us, please do. We're at, uh, anchor.fm slash cosmic. I, uh, and also please, if you, if you'd like to learn more about meditation or more about spiritual experiences, you can check out my book. Um, if you can, where you can meditate, uh, by Jason Napolitano or Chris Sheridan's book, The Spirit in the Sky, which is a great story of his spiritual experience and some of the challenges he had uh, adjusting to life in a wheelchair after a plane crash, a fantastic read. So thank you again for joining us. Uh, have a great week. Goodbye and God bless. <laughs>